Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, while it's true that most of America's Latinx voters have supported Democrats for generations, Republican candidates have consistently won about 20 to 30 percent of the Latino vote, including President Trump, who over the course of his presidency hasn't lost much ground among conservative Latinos. 20 to 30 percent is enough to hold sway in the upcoming election, says historian and political analyst Geraldo Cadaba, who set out to explain the loyalty of this voting bloc in his new book, The Hispanic Republican, the shaping of an American political identity from Nixon to Trump. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Recent polls show Democratic nominee Joe Biden underperforming among Latino voters in Florida, with a poll yesterday finding Trump leads Biden 50 to 46 percent. Biden's support among Latinos is also well behind where Hillary Clinton was in 2016 exit polls in the swing state. Historian and political commentator Geraldo Cadava says there's a lot to learn from the GOP's decades-long efforts to cultivate Latinx voters who can help prevent Democrats from winning in key swing states like Florida and Arizona. Cadava is a professor of history and Latina and Latino studies at Northwestern University. His new book is The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Welcome to Forum, Geraldo Cadava. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. And I hope you guys are all doing okay in Northern California. Yeah, we're doing okay, despite some pretty eerie orange skies that have blanketed our region. Um, But, you know, I wanted to ask you about this poll in Florida. I mean, given your research in this area, do these recent numbers showing Trump leading among Florida's Latino voters, do they surprise you? Not entirely. I mean, I I think for a long time, for many decades, um, South Florida in particular has been a Republican stronghold um, driven largely by support among Cuban-Americans. So, you know, I think historically, like when you look back at the Reagan years and Reagan himself won, you know, 80 or 90 percent of the the Cuban-American vote, I don't think it's that surprising. It's only in recent elections, like in 2008 or 2012, where uh, Barack Obama successfully narrowed the margin and kind of um, cultivated democratic support among Cuban Americans. So in some ways, this is kind of a reversion to the historical norm. Well, when you started researching your book, you said that you'd assumed that Hispanic Republican support (laughs) began among Cuban Americans. Why was that wrong? Well, uh, what I found when I started really digging into the archives and talking to many actors in the history that I wrote, um, I found that the Hispanic Republican movement was in many ways started by Mexican-Americans in the West and Southwest and California and Texas. And they kind of, um, you know, supported Western political candidates like Richard Nixon and Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. And some of the uh, Mexican-Americans who were involved in the Hispanic Hispanic Republican movement early on, I'm thinking of people like uh, Fernando Oaxaca, who um, recently passed away, but also people like Albert Zapanta, who worked in the Nixon and Ford administrations. These are Mexican-Americans from California. They said that Cuban-Americans didn't really, uh, as they put it, this is a quote, didn't really matter until the 1980s when Reagan really brought them into the uh, fold of the Republican Party by 
appealing to their anti-communism first and foremost. So I was surprised to learn that for some 20 years uh, before the 1980s, Mexican-Americans were the kind of leaders of the Hispanic Republican movement. And it was interesting, too, that it was groups first rallying around Eisenhower, right? What was yeah. the appeal? <laughs> yeah. Well, the appeal there was that um, many Latinos in general, Mexican-Americans in particular, had served and fought in World War II, and uh, Dwight Eisenhower was their general, and they thought that he was the kind of leader that uh, America needed during the early years of the Cold War. And then from there, how did Republicans and Republican candidates sort of cultivate uh, the support of Mexican-Americans, especially in California? What were some of their strategies? Mm. Yeah, you know, um, one really fascinating character was a guy named Stuart Spencer, who's still alive and lives in California. And he worked to recruit Mexican-Americans for Richard Nixon, not only during his presidential runs in 1968 and 1972, but during his earlier campaigns when he was running for a Senate seat in California as well. And, you know, his strategy was to really um, have a presence in heavily Mexican and Mexican-American communities in places like Los Angeles and East Los Angeles. So they would set up health clinics in the neighborhood. They would offer um, legal advice for people trying to sort through their immigration problems, and they would be a presence year-round, you know. So it, it was about committing to the community and being there not just during election periods and a few weeks before elections when they were seeking their votes, but demonstrating a kind of continuous presence. And that's not all that different from what you hear from Latino political strategists today, like uh, Chuck Rocha, who coordinated Bernie Sanders's Latino outreach efforts that, you know, you really need to demonstrate a commitment, not just by throwing money at a community and spending time in a community just a few weeks before an election, but by having a real presence over a long period of time. Well, we have a comment already from a listener, George, who writes, I would appreciate the author giving us a definition both for Hispanic and Latino, because they are two very different terms. Nobody understands what they mean and how yeah. these terms originated, primarily by the people who fall into these two groups. <laughs> I like this question because you specifically make a point in your book to talk about uh, why you decided to title it Hispanic Republican. So, yes, could yeah. you address George's question? Yeah, uh, thank you for the question, George. And, you know, especially I chose to call the book The Hispanic Republican because especially during the time period um, when the Hispanic Republican movement really got rolling in the late 60s, early 70s, into the 80s and 90s, Hispanic was the preferred term of Hispanic conservatives, conservatives who um, identified as Hispanic. Um you know, and that term historically has tended to have particular resonance in places like New Mexico or among Puerto Ricans in Florida. Um, sometimes it hasn't had much resonance at all because many Latinos continue to identify with their um, particular national group like Mexican-American or Puerto Rican or Cuban. But I think that during the 1970s and 1980s, that's when you saw a lot of political strategists, including the Hispanics who worked for the Reagan campaign, the Bush campaign, trying to kind of very self-consciously in a, in, in, in a strategic and intentional way define what were the character traits or political views that brought together different groups, different Latino nationality groups. Um, and they would talk about Spanish language. They would talk about Catholicism. They would talk about a work ethic or um, anti-communism or affinity for the free market, these kinds of things. And so in some ways, it is a kind of constructed identity um, in order to drum up support among multiple Latino national groups. But political scientists have also demonstrated that as time goes on, the members of individual national groups also come to think of themselves as Latinos in pan-ethnic terms. Still, do you think, I mean, what do you think of this notion of a Latino vote? I mean, we still use yeah. it to some extent, but is it, you know, sort of a misnomer? Has it outlived its usefulness? I don't think it has outlived its usefulness. I think that, um, I don't think there is such a thing as the Latino vote, but I do think that there are 
millions and millions of Latinos, people who identify as Latinos who do vote, whether it's as members of a community, as individuals, and to the extent that there are millions of Latinos who do vote. And, you know, this year we, we know that they will be the second largest block of American voters behind um, non-Hispanic whites. And to the extent that there are millions of Latinos who do vote, I think it's worth trying to understand their political behavior. Well, speaking of understanding their political behavior, it was very fascinating to also read how relations between, you know, this California's in particular, right, the state's Hispanic Republicans sort of changed and shifted during Reagan's term, but then really went south under Governor Pete Wilson. Can you talk a little mm. bit about what happened there? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by and large, Ronald Reagan was a Republican president who Hispanic Republicans greatly admired. And, and really, he when he was running for president, for example, in 1976 and 1980 and 1976, he lost in the Republican primary against Gerald Ford and then won the nomination and then the presidency in 1980. But in both of those campaigns, his pitch to Hispanics, and, you know, this wasn't just coming from him, it was coming from his Hispanic advisors like Fernando Oaxaca and Alex Armendariz, and also, importantly, a San Antonio advertising executive named Lionel Sosa, um, his pitch to Hispanics was that he, as the governor of California, uh, brought more Mexican-Americans into his administration than any governor before him since um, since the 19th century, actually, and that he understood their needs. He had many Mexican-American friends in the business community in California, so it was a, a particular class appeal for sure. But by and large, Reagan was seen as a Republican president who included Hispanics in his administration. And, but the 1980s is a, and, and, you know, we see that through like the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act that granted more than a million uh, Mexicans amnesty and um, helped them naturalize and become American citizens. We see that through also, you know, Reagan's statements that we didn't need a border wall between the United States and Mexico. But Within the Republican Party in the 1980s, there were also important strands of nativism and xenophobia rising across the country and that were beginning to play an increasing role in Republican Party politics. So I'm thinking in particular of the formation of groups like Federation for American Immigration Reform in the late 1970s or groups like U.S. English that were trying to make English the official language of the United States. And then a lot of this culminates in the um, primary campaign of Patrick Buchanan, who challenged George H.W. Bush in 1992 and even won 37% of Republican primary votes. So these kinds of um, contending forces within the Republican Party are starting to pull Hispanic Republicans in different directions. And I think, um, you know, those rising strands of nativism and xenophobia that were taking place really across the country in the 18 in the 1980s and early 1990s also came to play in California's gubernatorial race in 1994 when Pete Wilson really championed proposition 187 this was the moment when hispanic republicans started to uh, question their loyalty to the Republican Party. Mm. Well, we'll talk more about that after the break. We're talking with Geraldo Cadava about his new book, The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Stay with us for more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Most Latinx voters have supported Democrats since the days of Franklin D. Roosevelt, but around 30 percent have remained loyal to the Republican Party, including through the Trump presidency. In his new book, The Hispanic Republican, historian and political commentator Geraldo Cadava chronicles the history of Latinos organizing to support conservative candidates and causes. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What are your reactions, your questions for Geraldo Cadava based on what you've been hearing so far? Are you among the 30% or so of Latino voters in California who lean conservative? How do you plan to vote in November? How did you form your political identity? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Geraldo Cadava, just before the break, you were talking about the impact of Proposition 187 um, on Hispanic Republicans in California. Can you say more about that and remind us, of course, what happened to, to that proposition that became? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Proposition 187 was a um, voter ballot initiative in California that would strip undocumented immigrants of access to health benefits, social services, educational benefits. And it won in 1994 a large majority of support from California voters, including a significant um, percentage of support from Hispanics. But it was also an incredibly divisive bill that, by the way, was overturned by the California Supreme Court and was never enacted. Mm -hmm. But it was extremely um, controversial. And that's it was one of the moments that drove a wedge between Hispanic Republicans. And, you know, I think you would want to wind back the clock a little bit to the debates around the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which included a couple really um, controversial provisions, depending on your perspective, I guess. So it included employer sanctions, which would have um, which would have penalized employers for knowingly hiring undocumented immigrants. And it also included amnesty provisions or the, a, a path to citizenship, as we would call it today. And Hispanic Republicans supported the amnesty provisions, but did not support the employer sanctions provisions of the law. And so they didn't do that because they thought that the employer sanctions provisions would lead to discrimination against all Hispanics, regardless of their citizenship status. And that's what ended up happening. Employers reported being wary of hiring any Latinos because they didn't want to run the risk of hiring someone who was undocumented without, uh, yeah, without papers. So, you know, that those two provisions of the 1986 Act really kind of drove a wedge between Hispanic Republicans as well. And in that case, Hispanic Republicans were more likely to side with Hispanic Democrats who also favored amnesty and opposed oppose the employer sanctions provision. So fast forward to 1994, just you know, eight years after the signing of the Immigration Reform and Control Act, the same kind of thing happened where um, Hispanic Republicans who had in many ways supported the Re Republican Party for decades really began to question their support for the Republican Party of the 1990s that was increasingly tacking to the right on immigration. And, um, you know, it's widely understood that Proposition 187 and the debates surrounding it were responsible for damaging the reputation of the Republican Party in California. But I still find it surprising that even after that, and, and that's, you know, it's it's certainly true that before Prop 187, some 30, 32, 33 percent of Latinos in California would support the Republican Party and that afterwards only 23, 24, 25 percent would. So it definitely lowered their support. But it's still amazing to me that even 25 years after Proposition 187, a quarter of Latinos in California still support the Republican Party. Yes. So while registration, for example, right, by party is down to about 15, 16 percent mm -hmm. in terms of Latinos who are registered Republicans, as you say, yeah. nearly a third or so say they're conservative and yeah. a good quarter or so consistently vote 
Republican, yeah. including for President Trump, which I think for a lot of people, as you've described, yeah. is confounding, right? They, especially because yeah. this is a very different president, say, from Reagan. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the rhetoric he's used and the way that he has vilified and targeted Latinos and Mexican-Americans and Mexicans mm -hmm. who cross the border as well yeah. has also yeah. been a big issue. So what do you account for that consistency? Well, I, I first want to just go back to something you said about California and a quarter of Latinos still supporting Republicans and voting for Republicans, just as a, a fact that always blows my mind is that, you know, California is the state with the largest number of Latino voters in the United States. This year, it's expected that some 8 million Latinos will uh, from California will vote in the presidential election. And if it's true that a quarter of them will support Donald Trump, that means some 2 million Latinos in California will vote for Donald Trump. So just bracket that for a moment and compare that to Florida, which has maybe 3.1 million voters, uh, 3.1 million Latino voters. That is, in 2016, about 35% of them supported Donald Trump, which is about you know, one point some million voters. So it just, as a fact, blows my mind that there will be more Latinos in the state of California to vote for Donald Trump than will vote for Donald Trump in Florida, which is, of course, considered the, you know, bastion of Latino conservatism in a Republican stronghold. So, um, so it's just really interesting. I think that helps you think in different ways about what California looks like mm -hmm. decades after Proposition 187. So it's an interesting fact. But just to your question really quickly about what explains it, I mean, I think that I think that the period since the 1990s and after Proposition 187, these are decades when Hispanic Republicans have been at greater pains to explain and justify their support for Republicans. Uh, on issues that don't have anything to do with immigration. So they'll point to the fact that Latinos care more about education or health care or jobs. And these are all issues on which the Republican Party has certain takes. So like support for charter schools. And I read recently that some two thirds of students, or I'm sorry, a third of students in charter schools are Latinos or Latinos who support employer-provided health insurance instead of a universal health insurance option. I think Latino Republicans, as the Republican Party has turned further to the right on immigration, they've pointed to these other issues as reasons for their continued support. So there are the issues. And then finally, I think there's also over a period of decades, especially among older Latino Republicans who've supported the Republican Party for their whole lives. I mean, in many cases for 30 or 40 years, at this point, there's a reluctance to switch sides. I mean, we all know how deeply ingrained partisan identities are right now, and it's not easy to imagine leaving a party that you've supported for 30 or 40 years and moving to the other side. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller Domingo in Torrance. Hi, Domingo. Join us. Well, hi. How are you doing? Thank you for well. having me on. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Uh, you're very welcome. I have a question for the for for the guests. You know, I'm a first generation Hispanic immigrant. I've been here for already 40 years. It's been a long time, but I noticed that uh, the first generation comes over here to work and uh, and you know get ahead economically. And I think that that you know the 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 first few years of the Trump administration, I think most Hispanics. Uh, did well under Trump's economy uh, because of the lack of regulation that, uh, that that he proposed, and economically they did well. Um, I think that they also come here to have a better life for their kids, for their children. But mm -hmm. I think in that aspect, I think the Trump administration has almost um, uh, um, uh, put a stop to the infrastructure of upper mobility that Hispanics could have in going to school. So I'm wondering, have you seen any... Does that uh, relay into how Hispanics vote? Do they take mm -hmm. that into account? Uh, because there's a big dichotomy, I think, between the economy that we all want and mm -hmm. also there's, you know, some of the social systems that we all also care about. Or, yeah, or the social yeah. programs, I should say. 
Domingo, thanks. I hate to uh, answer your question with a question, but could you tell me a little more about the second part of your question where, you know, you said on the one hand in the first part that many immigrants experienced some economic upward mobility and, and enjoyed some good economic times under the first few years of the Trump administration. But then Correct. maybe some of his policies have prevented educational mobility among children. So could you say some more about that second oh, part? Sure. Why do you? Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, from from my own experience, my parents and I came here uh, basically for for a better economic opportunity for the family. Right. Uh-huh. And, and I think whether it's a Republican president or a Democratic president, if they offer that, that opportunity, I think they're going to have a, a better chance of getting our vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the second part of it is that you also want to have a, an infrastructure of upper mobility, meaning that yeah. school could be affordable. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. It, it isn't free, but it's affordable. Um, yeah. um, uh, so therefore, your kids can do better than you did, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's perhaps not only the Hispanic dream, but most of the people that immigrate here because of economic reasons. Because if they had it well in their country, they would have stayed there. I think, right? So we all come right. here, I think, for the, you know, for that reason, to get ahead and for, mm-hmm. a, you know, for a future generations to do better. But I think that under the Trump administration, because of, um, uh, I know that he offers school choice. However, after the school, the primary and maybe high school school choice has gone from. Um, from um, from vouchers that he's planning on doing, college is almost unaffordable to most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, so that in a way, in my sense, it puts um, yeah. it puts yeah. a stop to that ability for our kids to get ahead. And you're wondering, Domingo, if that has had some effect on Republican support or support for Donald Trump among Republican Hispanics? Is that what you're yeah, asking? That's, that's I guess yeah. That is a question. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, so you know, I, I am not a member of the Latinos for Trump campaign, but let me see if I can just channel what they might say for just a minute. I think, you know, if you paid attention at all to that really week of Hispanic outreach, you know, really a bonanza of Hispanic outreach by the Trump uh, administration in early July of this year, you know, the the week got remembered largely because of the Goya beans controversy, but there was a lot else going on. And in many ways, that whole week was about Hispanic outreach. And I think, you know, the core message of the Trump campaign that week was that educational and immigrant and financial opportunity were linked. And the Hispanic Prosperity Initiative, for example, was about and is about, because it's still ongoing, is about both increasing business opportunities for Latinos by making, um, you know, loans, government loans more accessible, more widespread, and creating new educational opportunities, not just by investing in charter schools and, and voucher programs, but also by investing in Hispanic-serving institutions, HSIs, um, and providing an easier pathway for Latinos to go to college. So I think from the Trump administration's perspective and the Latinos for Trump campaign, they would fully agree with you that financial and educational opportunity are closely linked. But I think, you know, the, the important I don't know if it's a challenge that you raised to that idea. You know, there, there's the idea that we're investing in education, but there's also the the reality of it being increasingly hard for, um, you know, teenagers or high school graduates to imagine going to college because of the suffocating amount of debt that they have to incur in order to do so. So there might be some kind of disconnect between the way that the Trump administration is talking about creating educational opportunities versus the, um, you know, actual educational opportunities that students have to go to college because of um, crushing student debt and the inability to pay for tuition. So that might be happening, in fact, even though the Trump administration is trying, trying to do both. Well, Domingo, thanks for the question. And actually joining us now is Michelle Martinez, National Secretary for the Republican National Hispanic Assembly. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. And so are you planning to vote for Trump in 2020? Yes, absolutely. And and why? 
Um, well, as uh, I had been listening to your show earlier, I do believe myself to be a Republican and a conservative, and I do follow the party lines as well as support our president. I think that everything that he promised, uh, he kept those promises. And we've seen, um, although we are living during an interesting period right now with COVID-19, um, if we look back to the statistics in 2019, we could see that Hispanics were prospering more than any other group. Um, we had um, more Latinos enrolling in universities, more Latinas um, initiating businesses, more Latinos buying homes. Um, that was all good for for our community. And so um, I feel that he has definitely um, initiated for the Latino community that sense of prosperity that we come here for as immigrants or, you know, being Americans hmm. um, that have been born and raised here. And so I heard that your parents um, immigrated here from Peru. Is that right? That is correct. And so yes. when they immigrated here, you know, how quickly did they become or identify as members of the Republican Party? Well, it's a very interesting conversation because my parents are still registered as Democrats, but vote for um, our oh. president, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> and I think it speaks to a very interesting dynamic um, that uh, they found here in the United States, which is um, – you know, we, we vote our values, but there is something um, that was very interesting about the messaging with the Democrats that um, lured them into registering Democrat. But when they sit down to take to make their vote, which they take very seriously, having come from Peru and understanding how important it is to be able to vote, um, they do take the time to look at the statistics and realize, well, I've got to vote for President Trump. Now, my parents and I have very different opinions. They, they don't necessarily care for his um, ways of communication or what have you, but mm -hmm. they still believe in his policies and practices and will vote for him as well. And you don't have misgivings about the way he's communicated about Latinos or... Mexicans. No, and I, I think that's a more complex question that can be answered with a yes or no. But I'll, I'll try to explain myself. Uh, um, I believe that people are human, and in the best of times, we hope to come off well. And in private moments, we may say things that we um, end up regretting and don't necessarily mean. Um, and I think that a person's actions are much more important than their words. Um, words are easily given, um, but the actions behind them is what, you know, defines a person and their character. So what I've seen is that although he tends to be a bull in a china shop, <laughs> I also think that the times we're currently living in um, calls for an individual as as our current president, who does not mince words, he says what he means, and he does what he means. Um, so I, I can certainly support him. Now, has he misspoke at times? Yes. Um, has he probably said things that he lived to regret? Yes. But I think that a person's character is what really defines them and, and their actions. And so when I look to him and see how he is... Um, defending Hispanic policies with, you know, creating the new um, uh, prosperity initiative for Latinos, how um, it is reflective in our statistics of, you know, work and education. Um, when he defends our religious freedoms, you know, not even speaking to just Latinos, but as Americans, uh, when he is defending those freedoms and ensuring that not just um, corporations prosper, but that middle-class America is being lifted up by the programs he's initiating, yes. then this is definitely something I can get behind. Well, Michelle Martinez of the Republican National Hispanic Assembly, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Geraldo Cadava. His new book is The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum. Or email us at forum at kqed.org. Curious, are you among the 30% of Latino voters in California who say they lean conservative? How do you plan to vote in November? What are your questions? 
questions for Gerardo Cadava about uh, the impact that Latino conservatives, Hispanic Republicans could have this election. Um, let me go to Carrie in San Jose to start us off after this break. Hi, Carrie. Join us. Hi, good morning. I just wanted to know what percentage of um, Latino Republicans are um, religious conservatives or evangelical single issue voters? Oh, thanks, Carrie. It, religion plays a role, but uh, would love to hear your response to Carrie, Geraldo Cadava. Sure. Uh, you know, I don't have the precise percentage at the tip of my fingers, but I can say that, yes, of course, um, religious identity and religious freedom is uh, an important part of why Latinos are conservative, why many Latinos are conservative. And, you know, it's not just about Catholicism, as you know, it's also about evangelicalism. And, um, you know, the fastest growing religion among Latinos is evangelicalism. And I think that the important thing about that is that Latin uh, evangelical Latinos are kind of swing voters. It's not that they are overwhelmingly or uh, uniformly conservative either. I think they're uh, political affiliations split about 50-50 Democrat and Republican, but 50% supporting Republicans is a much greater percentage than the percentage of Latinos overall who support Republicans. So I still think that that's why the Republican Party sees Latino evangelicals as some of their most fertile recruiting ground, especially in these days when partisan identities are so entrenched and we hear all the time that there are just fewer and fewer undecided voters. So I think the evangelical church is one place where the Republican Party thinks that it can go to get new voters. And Catholicism is interesting, you know, I mean, I think that there there is, of course, a strong, um, you know, anti-abortion tradition among Catholics, but there's also a strong liberation theology branch of Catholicism that is about social justice and um, economic justice. So I think religion as an issue, trying to explain how it ties to Latino conservatism is much more complicated. Now, to your point about whether they're single voters or not, I don't think they single issue voters. I don't think they are. You know, I think Latino conservative identity is comprised of many different things. Part of it might be religious identity. Part of it might be military service. Part of it might be the fact that you have a, a family member who's a border patrol officer or a police officer, or some of them might have to do with your income. So it's a really complicated thing, and religion is one part of it. Well, Bernie writes, as many Latinx immigrants come from countries lacking in the strong rule of law, does the Republican Party's law and order messaging have a strong resonance? It does. It does. Not not you know universally or uniformly or overwhelmingly, but it does. I mean, I think that even historically, there's this interesting issue, uh, interesting idea that the way that Latinos have gone about civil rights is through kind of peaceful gathering, behind the scenes organizing, uh, doing so in compliance with the law. So they're kind of kind of peaceful protesters. And in the 1960s, they used that as an idea to express their um, disapproval of how African-American civil rights activists took to the streets. I mean, this is a, a, a grossly oversimplified idea and isn't even quite true to the facts of the matter, but it's it's an idea. So the idea, of course, is that over a long period of time, Latinos have been kind of law-abiding, respectful civil rights activists. And I think that's part of the law and order conversation. But I think the other part is that you have a large percentage of the U.S. military is Latino. A large percentage, half of the U.S. Border Patrol is Latino. And so a lot of our families and communities have close relationships with police officers and uh, Border Patrol officers. So I think that that, that could resonate with uh, some percentage of the Latino electorate. Well, Brent writes, I worked for years with immigrants seeking citizenship. Once a Latino acquires citizenship, they look down on those new arrivals who don't speak English and are poor. I mean, of course, as we're saying, this is not something that necessarily is universally shared, but is it enough of um, an influence potentially in terms of explaining uh, Republican support? Do you think that is the case? I mean, I was also struck by, I read this piece by Ruben Navarrete, who was saying mm -hmm. something quite similar. Um, 
I believe he's a Republican, but a never Trumper. And he was saying that they, they see themselves as, quote, post-Latino, um, as sort of as Americans and Americans only, and that, that Mexican immigrants crossing the border aren't necessarily the people that they feel like they associate as part of their identity now. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued by the idea of post-Latino, and I wonder if recent immigrants are pre-Latino who become Latino. So I think, you know, that's that's interesting. It sounds a little bit like my grandfather's story. He joined the U.S. He's from Panama and is Colombian and Panameño and Filipino. And he joined the U.S. Air Force as a way, not not only as a way of becoming a citizen, but the way he became a citizen was by joining the U.S. Air Force. And um, he voted for a Republican for the first time in 1980 when he voted for Ronald Reagan. At this time, he had retired from the Air Force and was working in silver mines outside of Tucson. And he voted for Reagan because Reagan was promising to put more money back into his weekly paycheck through tax cuts. Um, so he, he kind of voted for a Republican for the first time because of taxes and financial matters. But then over a course of decades, he came to embrace Republican Party positions wholesale, including the position on immigration. And the thing he always told me when I was a kid is that he, you know, you hear this a lot, he immigrated the right way. And it's not that he's against immigration. He's just against illegal immigration and for legal immigration. And I think that gets at the point about once immigrants naturalize and become citizens, and the longer they spend in the United States as citizens, it becomes easier for them to distance themselves from the experience of immigrants. I think there's some um, truth to that as an experience of many Latinos, but it has gone in the other direction as well, where uh, many Latinos who've been here for generations still kind of fight for um, immigrants in part because they recognize that they, their families have uh, an experience of immigration. Many of them might have family members who immigrated recently. So, you know, generally, in its most general sense, I think the issue of immigration and long-time presence in the United States is an interesting one. And you would tend to think that it, it would make sense that Latinos who've been in the United States for longer would be less defined by the immigrant experience and their politics would be less defined by the immigrant experience and might therefore be more likely to be conservative. And it would be recent immigrants or immigrants who recently naturalized who would be more likely to be Democrats or mm. to embrace the Democratic Party. But I don't know that that's entirely true either. I mean, I was interviewing the chairman of the Republican Party of El Paso, and he told me that for the longest time, he would go to all of the naturalization ceremonies in El Paso and pass out Republican Party literature, which kind of defined the Republican Party for immigrants who were literally just that moment naturalizing and would say this is what the Republican Party stands for. And then to return to the issue of Latino evangelicals, Latino evangelicalism is by and large an immigrant religion, and it's an, a religion that many Latin Americans bring with them to the United States and then join evangelical churches once they move to the United States. So I think if you think about evangelical churches and the Republican Party chairman of El Paso going to naturalization ceremonies. Those are just two examples of how the Republican Party also has not given up on recruiting new immigrants, in part because they need to find more support if they're going to remain a viable party going forward. Because, yes, it's true that for the past 50 years, they have maintained a, a, a level of support at around 30% of the Latino vote. But as Latinos represent an ever-growing share of the American population, that 30% from year to year is not going to be enough. So they have to find new support somewhere. Well, we have just about nine minutes left, so I want to make sure we get to some calls. Joshua in yeah. Alexandria, Virginia, join us. Hi, Joshua. Hey, how you doing? Great. Sorry, I, this is my first time calling. This is a really cool show. I just wanted to ask a quick question. Um, essentially, what I wanted to ask was... Um, so as we've seen, like in the past few years uh, under the Trump presidency, like a lot of white supremacists have been emboldened. Um, I guess maybe some of the rhetoric that he uses is like interesting or like appeals to them. And then um, so 
with that being said, I wanted to ask, um, like, I, I apologize if this is, like, offensive or if it's, like, off tone, but essentially, like, um, is there, like, maybe, like, a can't beat them join them mentality, you know, like, or even, like, what the previous car had said, like, you know, when they finally, like, have uh, citizenship, they kind of look down on uh, people who don't. Is there maybe, like, so much as, like, you know, uh, well, like, beat, can't beat them join them or, like, you know, like, uh some Latino people can be like really white passing. Right. And it's like, maybe you can benefit from being like close to whiteness. And I, I ask that cause like as an African-American male, like um, a lot of like, in a like my circles or like people I talk to, like if there's like a, a black man or a black woman who's like a Republican, you're like, Oh, they're a sellout. You know, they're like kind of buying into white supremacy or something like that. Do you think that there's like something like that at players and more so like economic or religious and like i completely understand if you don't know but i was just wanted to ask it's a great question joshua and also something that i think is a conversation that's having within communities of color but gerardo cadava yeah that's a great question i mean i i think there there's certainly one leading theory of latino conservatism is that it's about the lighter skinned latinos who are more affluent and can pass and therefore you know enter the halls of power in a way power and influence and kind of cozy up to republican party influentials in a way that people with darker skin cannot um that's certainly a a leading idea about why Latinos are conservative. And as as you pointed to, you know, the idea of like being a race trader and being a sellout, that's another prevalent idea. And personally, I think it's the wrong way to think about it, because I think if you dismiss people, and, and when we're talking about people, we're talking about 30% of the second largest voting block in the United States. I think Latinos are expected to account for like 13% of the vote this time. And, and that's, gosh, I want to say like 15 million or uh, so Latinos who will vote this election. So to call 30% of them sellouts or race traders, maybe it's offensive, but it's also just not a productive way to go about understanding who Latino voters are and what they believe in. So, you know, I think one one, you know, main idea of my book is to try to move away from any oversimplified way of describing Latino voters and to try to take them seriously as political actors and listen to what they're saying about their reasons for supporting um, supporting the Republican Party or for supporting the Democratic Party. I think both parties in many ways have taken Latinos for granted. So, you know, I think the, the question of whiteness passing, yes. it's super interesting. But, you know, like with religion and others, I wouldn't want to pin an entire argument or hang an entire argument about why Latinos are conservative on that issue. How do you think the pandemic is going to affect things? I mean, I do think there is an open question as to how long, as you said earlier, you alluded to, they can hold on to this consistent level of support. Mm -hmm. We know that the pandemic has disproportionately also hit um, Latinx communities. So I wonder if you think that the pandemic kind of throws all of sort of what we knew from before a little bit up in the air. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so. And I think that in many ways, your um, other guest who's a speaker for the Republican National Hispanic Assembly was getting at this, that the argument going into 2020 of the Trump campaign was that Latinos were doing better than ever before. Rates of home ownership were up, median incomes were up, unemployment was down. And then the pandemic hit. And we know that uh, just today, I was reading an NPR story about how, uh, you know, 60, 70 percent of Latinos in the biggest cities in the United States have reported financial difficulties since March. And that's in some ways not surprising at all because many Americans are suffering right now. But to see the pandemic take such have such a, a disproportionate effect on people of color is um, is really, really disturbing and something that we need to spend a lot of time thinking about and how to uh, figure out how to solve that problem. So, you know, I do think that the past few months have shaken things up, perhaps like elections haven't been shaken up before. I mean, as a historian, I'm very reluctant to say that. I'm sure we could find equally turbulent elections. But I do think that this could be a moment of realignment and a movement, a moment when um, people who've supported parties for a long time might rethink their support because of how 
much America has been shaken. So I, I think that it could be a moment. But the, the one note of caution that I would have as a historian is that you look at the past 50 years, that 25 to 33 percent support has held fairly steady. So we'll see. You've also highlighted comments um, from people who may not like Trump the man, but still believe in the party and how that is actually um, kind of a 180 from from the past. Yeah. Say say that one more time. I didn't you were quite, saying that yeah. they they're okay with the party, not so much with the man. Whereas what yeah. may have necessarily gotten them interested or um, loyal to the Republican Party was initially the promises yeah. of the candidate, which is an interesting yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many more things to to talk about. I, I just want to get a couple more comments in here if I can. Sure. Yeah. Uh, this listener writes: Please call out the facts. Trump promised to build the wall. He did not. Promises kept his propaganda, and he has never publicly regretted anything. That caller is yeah. doing all the regretting for him. I think this person is referring to Michelle Martinez earlier. But I think the one thing that I was struck by is that she was saying that her parents are registered Democrat, but when it comes down to vote, they vote. Republican. And I think there is a lesson for Democrats in there, yeah, isn't there? Totally. Well, there certainly is. And, it, you know, Michelle's comments resonated with a lot of what I've heard from the Hispanic Republicans that I've interviewed. Some of them say, like I was talking to a candidate uh, last week who's running for office in South Texas, the Rio Grande Valley, which is like 80 or 90 percent Hispanic and traditionally Democrat. But she is running as a Republican, and she thinks that there's a good chance that she'll win in November. And the reason, she says, is that she thinks it's not that her values have shifted, it's that the values of the Democratic Party have shifted. And so it's actually the Democrats that have moved, not the Republicans. So, you know, that is an interesting perspective. And I was thinking about her comments when I was listening to Michelle, too, because I do think that that is uh, something I've heard a lot of from the people I've interviewed. Well, this listener writes, there's a long history of using the word Mexican as a slur and a way to divide differing ethnic groups and immigrants. When Trump disparages Mexicans, this can have the effect of pushing other Latinx groups toward him and recognizing a common enemy. It's a classic divide and conquer. Terry writes, Latinos should judge Trump on what he has done to Latinos, putting children in cages, deporting Latinos with COVID to Guatemala. Uh, So there is a lot that I think will, as you say, a lot of nuance and complication among uh, voters, especially this season. And I'm sure you are watching closely as to how this will all play out. Geraldo Cadava. Yeah, thanks for your analysis and for your book, The Hispanic Republican, The Shaping of an American Political Identity from Nixon to Trump. Learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. And thanks to our listeners for great questions, comments, and for their engagement. Blanca Torres uh, produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Generosity Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. 
New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.